Welcome to Breaking Free. I'm Rania Kurdi, a transformational life coach, comedian, and mother of two. And you can join me weekly to hear some intimate self-reflections and conversations with inspirational friends and guests from all around the world, sharing what they needed to break free from in order to live a life of purpose. My guest today is Ramzi Salti, an author, blogger, vlogger, podcaster, and lecturer in Arabic at Stanford University for over 20 years and recipient of several awards for his distinguished teaching. So, Ramzi, at first you were a fan and supporter of the Rania show Comedy Sketches and actually interviewed me eight years ago on your podcast, Arabology, and then again two years ago when we first met face-to-face and became friends. And it was on your show that I first announced I'd be starting my own podcast. And now here we are full circle with you as my guest on Breaking Free. I'm so happy to have you here today. Yes, the tables are turned. And and I'm I'm delighted because I've interviewed you, as you said, for my radio show, which was live right here um, in California. Then we got to sit together in Amman and and you gave me one of the most generous, wonderful, funny, serious interviews I've ever conducted. (laughs) And here we are now. I'm doing your amazing podcast. I think podcasts are the future. I think they're here to stay. And, uh, you know, when I would, uh, when I had my show on the radio, Arabology, you know, we would tape it live um, as is, but then I enjoy turning it into a podcast. And to this day, I keep getting people saying, you know, this podcast you did from 10 years ago is still relevant. And it, it all has to do with, it's, it, it, it's, it's about, you know, People don't read maybe as much, right? They want audiobooks, they want podcasts, they want. So I think this is the right time to keep doing it. And and the uh, the Corona situation, I think, uh, when radio stations across the USA shut down, uh, we all turned to making our own podcasts from home. And 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 I think you know, out of necessity, we did it. But I'm finding that I'm enjoying it a lot more than having a specific time limit, going on the air, feeling pressured, having to play public service announcements. So yes, yes. I think I think you're, you've expanded into the right domain. And I know your podcast already is gaining popularity and I'm so proud. So in the intro, um, I mentioned that you're a lecturer in Arabic at Stanford University since 1999. But I'd like to start with you right from the beginning, from your childhood, Ramzi, which is, you know, a part of your life I don't know. And I'm sure, you know, the listeners would be interested in knowing. Um, You were born in Lebanon and you grew up there the first, you know, few years of your life before you went to high school in Jordan, I believe. Yes, yes. Uh, so I was born and raised in Lebanon, um, and really it was a it was a nice childhood. I don't think I appreciated it until the civil war broke out in '75, and we had to my family and I had to you know hurry and, and leave the country, and we didn't know where to go, and we ended up going to Jordan, where we had um, you know relatives, and just I remember sort of the culture shock at the time. We're talking about the '70s of going from Lebanon. 
pre-civil war where you had, um, you know, you had the Mediterranean weather, you had a, a different kind of vibe uh, in terms of the school I went to and, and uh, the society I lived in. And going to Jordan in the 70s was a little bit of a culture shock. But um, in terms of your question, I mean, I think growing up in Lebanon really shaped me in many ways, because um, I grew up, you know, not really uh, thinking about religion, for example, it didn't, you know, these things didn't occur to me, we were raised uh, in, a, in a school and in a household where that didn't matter, uh, you know, where you come from, what is your origin, you know, these kind of questions just were never asked, which of course ended up in a civil war. I mean, ironically, uh, a war based on religion and, and ethnic origin. But before that, it was just such a, I think, a beautiful society. As a child, I just remember having very diverse friends, not really knowing anything too personal about their background and not caring. And I think my mom at the time was very instrumental uh, in, uh, in, you know, implementing that in me and, uh, and my brother. Mm. Uh, you know, we were, we were always told to be proud of our language of Arabic because, you know, in Lebanon, there's a little bit of a post-colonial effect in terms of the French uh, colonial experience. So, you know, we were never brought up to think of Arabic as a secondary language or to be ashamed of it, even if many people in society thought French was the way to communicate and elevate and all that. But did you speak French with your friends or at school mostly? We had, we had to, I mm. mean, you know, at school, it was, a, you know, sort of a French education school. Yeah. And, uh, and so, of course, I ended up speaking very, uh, you know, my French was really good at the time. Uh, but what I liked is, you know, once we, once I left school, once I got home, my parents were not, were in, you know, speak Arabic at home. Mm. Uh, here, read this book, this children's book in Arabic. They may not be teaching it in your French school, but, uh, you know, you are Lebanon, you are in Lebanon, you, you are, you know, Arabic is a beautiful language. So I think my mom, who actually taught Arabic while in Beirut to American kids, uh, inspired me to kind of uh, think of teaching as my profession in the future. I mean, I was 10 years old and I remember her, uh, you know, recording on tape recorders at the time, cassettes, you know, little conversations in Arabic to play to her students and then helping her grade the homework. And it was just such a joy to know that she was very proud of being an Arab and very proud of the Arabic language. And I think that's where, you know, where the, origins came from wow. and, and uh, I ended up at Stanford as you said in uh, 1999 and my PhD my specialization over the past two, uh, 22 years has been Arabic I mean it's all about how the Arabic language affects us and, uh, and how we're seen and how our language is so often underrated and the way that it is taught in certain Arab countries can be very, very boring for mm. students, you know. Mm. So many Arabic speakers, many students, I don't know, from Jordan, from any Arab country, 
tend to shy away from the classical Arabic because we associate it with memorizing and having to speak that way when outside of the class we didn't. And, uh, and so there is sort of a disconnection that goes on between the Arabic language and Arabic speakers. Yeah. And, uh, and so for me, I, I, I insisted always in my free time every summer to continue reading in Arabic, watching Arabic films. And I find myself doing that now here in America at a time where Arabs are demonized in order to show how the very language itself can can be so uh, useful in talking about tolerance and, ta- and, you know, our proverbs alone in Arabic, which can't be translated into English, reflect an attitude that surprises the West about how uh, beautiful the language is, how it's still applicable today, and how rich it is compared to other languages. You know, I, I grew up speaking three languages. Yeah. Uh, you know, in Lebanon, they always say, hi, kifak, sava, you know. Yes. Uh, and it becomes so daily, you don't realize you're saying, th- you're yeah, speaking in three languages. Yeah, there's t-shirts now that say that. <laughs> I love that. Kifak, sava, yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I grew up speaking these three languages. And when I was going to do my master's and uh, PhD here in America, I kind of was thinking, where, where, you know, what can I find where I could use all three languages? I didn't want to be just a French, Mm. uh, you know, major or English or Arabic. And somebody told me about comparative literature, which was a a relatively new field. And they said that you need three languages, but you'll be studying intersections and comparisons between various literary texts from uh, three different regions, let's say Europe, the US and the Arab world. And so I loved that, you know, you could pick a theme and, and find how that theme is broached within Arabic literature and French and English. The representation of anything can be, uh, you know, compared and contrasted. So I loved it and I got to use my three languages and I think it was the perfect major for me. Uh, so when I graduated from there in 97, I got my doctorate in 97, I was offered a job at Stanford like two years later, and I've been here ever since. Wow. And I mean, I know that you teach in an unusual and fun and um, interactive way because you surprised me when you had me as a guest on your podcast or radio show and said to me that you'd been teaching my sketches to your students because it showed the culture of the Middle East. And I was like, how fun is that? You know, I I would not imagine a, a lecturer at Stanford Um, introducing that sort of thing and comedy to you know your students and you said a lot of them impersonated me and know the characters so well I think that was my highlight it made doing the show like worthwhile to know that (laughs) well I mean I know I know you're interviewing me today but I do have to say this Rania I discovered the Rania show after it had already aired I think on Roya TV in in Jordan and so I I was I wasn't aware of it when it was happening you know every uh, every year whenever it was on Roya I I caught it after and I just started to watch these episodes and these characters. And I immediately said, there it is. There's the Arab world's answer to Tracy Ullman, who I, I'm a huge fan of Tracy Ullman. I quoted you on my website. That's my favorite <laughs> quote. I love Tracy you know, Ullman. Oh, 
and that quote will remain true forever because you're a chameleon and the way you were personifying these characters and creating them it was like people i knew and you know and it was i could relate you know even the names sometimes would match it was that close and so for me i mean the entertaining value of it and the way it pokes fun at at certain horrible issues we have you know from classism to uh, you know um homophobia racism, to uh, racism you yeah. know all of that i mean it pokes fun at it in such Uh, an entertaining way but then it creates a discourse and so I thought you know this is exactly what my students at Stanford keep asking me about you know can we see sketches that represent real life but that aren't so tedious because the book you know will include very serious sketches about the Arab world or about culture or about uh, films or whatever it is mm. and and I wanted something that would make them laugh so that they're learning and then at the end of each episode they would give us time to discuss them and yeah. that's where we could say you know this is really funny <laughs> I would love and to of have course, been a fly on the wall <laughs> I wish I'd recorded those mm. classes for you but I continue to use them because the, the uh, you know every every series you come up with every project you come up with has been very useful for me I mean I don't need to tell you how you are um, you know American students relate to you in a very direct way but you're also Jordanian and proud of being Jordanian and so I think in a way they see in you the west and the east sort of being combined and you're speaking Arabic so flawlessly with accents and <laughs> you know and really like a very very sort of localized accents from Jordan you know, yeah. you know and so they love it I mean it creates this space for us to discuss you know how uh, an accent how a dialect can sometimes be betray a person's identity, betray in the sense of like whether they're hiding it or going with it. I think we know which characters tend to yeah. have fake Russian accents, for example. But I mean, they're all segments of society. And so I can't think of a better way of teaching Arabic than by using these sketches. They end, the students end up in stitches, they laugh, and then it gives me the opportunity to say, well, I mean, we're laughing at this character, not with her often. Mm. But why is it? Well, I mean, why do you think this is so funny? Do you think the same concept exists in, in America? We're doing all this in Arabic and yeah. the show becomes, uh, I don't know, to me, it's the perfect companion to the book and it alleviates some of the more mundane aspects of teaching Arabic. I'd much rather show an episode of the Rania show and have the kids laugh uh, than to introduce a very serious video about, I don't know, like you said racism in yeah. the arab world yeah. um and and for that rania i'm not necessarily applauded because there are many many people who teach at the college level who teach arabic who find that my use of pop culture and popular shows and even indie Uh, Arabic uh, music and mm. television and, and films um, is not, uh, as they say, I, I need to elevate my style and only introduce poetry and serious TV shows and, you know, to reflect on it. And I think that goes back to the way they were taught themselves. They're taught mm. that you were the way to teach classical Arabic, al-fusha, is through 
very serious means and you know to to sort of pay homage to this great language yeah. i find i find that to be out of touch i mean it's just my personal opinion and thank god 22 years of teaching at stanford the students in their evaluations consistently love that and tend to even mention i've taken other arabic classes uh at stanford or elsewhere and and it, the the way the language was taught was sort of mundane would that we knew about the radio show then oh. well you must you know? be doing something right ramzi because you've um been awarded so many different awards. One of them is the Stanford Dean's Award for Distinguished Teaching in 2004, and so many others. So, you know, what was the most special for you? What do they mean when you when you are, you know, receive these awards? Are they validation that you are on the right path? You are doing things the right way for these students? Absolutely. I mean, it's not so much the prestige of saying I received an award because many of us do a great job and don't receive awards. And I, sometimes it may be just out of uh, being dismissed, you know, not being taken seriously. But uh, for me, this award came out of the blue. And it, it's, a, it's a pretty prestigious award at Stanford. I didn't even know it existed. But apparently my students that year um, had conspired behind my back <laughs> and, and they got signatures and they all wrote to the dean and to the awards um, people at the time and I didn't know any of it and but I would sometimes catch them when I come into class I would hear them whispering or something or oh, laughing so about I, and I would feel like am I paranoid or are they talking about me when I'm not here mm. but you know I wasn't gonna meddle in their business <laughs> uh, you know <laughs> turned out Janish, I'm so glad I didn't pressured them because yes. turned out they were talking to students that I had and students that you know that I was currently teaching or at that time teaching and then also past students and they all got together and wrote the, these amazing uh, letters to uh, the university saying he made Arabic so much fun we thought that teaching Arabic would be very uh, problematic and very systemic and you know and mm. and, and know the way he did it was was by bringing us all these popular culture um, clips that helped us understand the other side. And when you make language teaching fun, you can then teach yeah. the syntax and the grammar. But the basis has to be something that the kids could relate to. Yeah. And again, uh, this award was before, you know, you and I met and before the Rania show, but it was so validating because up till then I've been there maybe five years at Stanford when the, I mm -hmm. got the award. And I really wasn't sure uh, from the input I was getting from everybody, whether they thought, you know, I was doing a good job or not. I mean, I didn't know. And so I was just going by instinct and by you know, trial and error and by students' reactions. So when that award came, it just told me, wow, I'm so glad I did it this way. And I'm teaching, whether it's Arabic or comparative literature, I want to teach my courses this way in an interactive, modern uh, way, rather than the way I was taught to speak yeah. Arabic, which was so much memorization and fear associated with it, to a degree where you start associating Al-Fusha, classical Arabic, with, you know... Yeah, it makes uh, you dislike the language instead of enjoy a language. Right, you feel disconnected from it. But you know, Fusha is an amazing language. If 
if we were taught to appreciate the humorous texts we have in Fosha, mm. not just all these, you know, poems and uh, and serious texts, you know, there I, I remember Arabic class was never humorous. There was never a, a fun moment. Yeah. It was very educational and we had great teachers uh, back in high school uh, in Jordan, but the class was fear. I mean, there was, there was an element of respect yeah. and reverence and fear and we couldn't joke. And especially when you used Fusha, you know, it's associated yeah. with such serious texts and that Fusha, you almost... And by the way, is the meaning of classical. So classical is Fusha. Yes, that's classical Arabic. So yeah. the, the Arabic we teach at Stanford is called modern standard Arabic. It's kind of a Fusha, a classical Arabic, yeah. but is not maybe as eloquent. It's, mm. But it's certainly not colloquial, not Amiya. We aim for that modern standard Arabic, which could, which is in classical, but does not necessarily have to observe all the Yes. Well, somewhat archaic rules of grammar. You know, when you just learn a language as a language and you know all the grammar and everything, but you know nothing about really the culture or the or the TV shows that they've watched in, in that particular country that makes conversations happen, the music that impacts, you know, how people, um, what, what phases they go through in their life or what fashion statements, all of that is really what makes a culture. And so when you're disconnected from all of that and you only know the grammar and the language, you remain an outsider. So what makes me feel at home in England, even though I didn't grow up here, was because I would come back and forth. So I know I know EastEnders, for instance, which is like the longest ever running soap. So <laughs> I feel like I'm still part of the whole English culture because I know about that or I know about certain foods or certain jokes, you know. But if I didn't, I would really be left out in conversation, no matter how good my British is, it would always feel like I was an outsider. So I think those are really important to know about a culture when you're learning the language. Yes, the, you, you've hit the nail on the head, Rania, because I don't know how you can teach language and, and separate it from culture. And I think many instructors, many professors try to do that. You know, let's concentrate on the language and the grammar and the syntax. And, and they don't bring in the cultural elements. Do you know, God forbid they would bring in a, a, an Arabic song, let's say a hip hop Arabic song, you yeah. know. But, you know, I'm looking at this generation and they like hip hop, you know, let's say. Yeah. And hip hop has been, adopted in their world and I mean it's been imported from the West but then it's been Arabized it's been Arabicized it's been used to talk about the youth's problem in the Arab world as it relates to being Arab and being in the Middle East or being uh, at this time and so I, th I find that if I you know if I have students who tend to, to like hip-hop the hip-hop generation bring them an Arabic hip-hop song mm. uh, you know if, if they want to know about life daily life in um, Amman bring them the Rania show expose them to these characters that are you know exaggerated and, mm. and caricaturish but so um, informative because then the kids are saying really there are people like that and you say well unfortunately or fortunately yes and it creates you know this ability to remember the language and the terms uh, through the culture so I'm I'm a huge fan of teaching Arabic language and culture together and not separating them in any way definitely and I think that that you know the podcast is about breaking free and I it, to me it sounds like that's where you broke free of not teaching in the standard 
way that people expect you to teach and daring to do what you felt felt right and it working i mean it uh breaking free was a process Mm. uh first you have to sort of unlearn the way you were taught, yeah. uh, especially with Arabic, because that's such a precious language to my heart. And and so, you know, you have to you have to kind of revisit the way you were taught Arabic, memorize, don't ask why, uh, you know, that kind of uh, uh, attitude, and then relearn a new way to make it respectful and worthy of the Arabic language but reachable, you know, so that fus- the Fusha, the classical Arabic, isn't out of reach. It isn't the language of yesterday, the language of pre-Islamic Arabia. I mean, these poems are amazing there. They're such an important part, of course, but without bringing in current culture, current cultural productions, um, I don't think uh, you're able to reach a new generation, whether here or in the Arab world, uh, quite this, uh, you know, quite the same way. So my breaking free had to do with breaking free of traditional instructional methods and methodologies that are still being adopted when you teach Arabic in, in, in the US and elsewhere, and trying to teach it in a completely different way. And, and so, yeah, eventually, when I think maybe that reference to the award you mentioned was the moment where I really broke free because it validated that the little experiments I was doing were working. And then the proficiency level of my students after having learned with me for a couple of years were so impressive that, you know, something must have worked. And so I think that was a key moment to allowing myself to break free and not to give in uh, or give too much attention to people who were critiquing and criticizing, Mm. criticizing my teaching style as being maybe too Western or not reverent enough or not, you know. Um, And so, yes, and since then I have been sort of flying free and on my own uh teaching the way i want and uh, and getting amazing results in terms of proficiency from uh, students and also it's great that you have your own show where you talk to different artists as well you know you're really combining all the things that you love into one yeah, that radio show, Nadia, I don't know if yeah. you know what, what, what how, how it happened. I don't think you and I have ever really discussed it. No. But I'd been teaching at Stanford for 10 years at that point. Mm-hmm. And I love my classes. I still love my classes. And I love teaching Arabic. But there is a certain repetition that starts going on. I mean, you're teaching yeah. sort of the same class, the same level, uh, year in, year out. What's nice is you get different groups, so it's always a different dynamic. But at the end of it, you know, I was getting into my 40s and I was starting to think, okay, I love teaching Arabic and I want to do it at Stanford for the rest of my life. But is this all I'm going to do with my life career wise, you know, teach my classes on this beautiful campus with these amazing students and then go home? And there was something missing, I think, in my 40s. I kind of felt, yes, I'm bringing in culture, bringing Arabic culture and music into the classroom, but that's only a segment of the class. Um, Mm. I'd love to do that full time. I'd love to be able to highlight uh, cultural productions from all around the Arab world to Americans and maybe 
do it in English because, you know, it's like if you're doing it in Arabic, you're kind of preaching to the choir and there's so many amazing yes. programs in Arabic, even about alternative Arabic music in the Arab world and on the internet. But then I was looking at, at the, our radio station at Stanford. It's called KZSU 90.1 FM and they didn't have a single show that broached Arabic music or any kind of Arabic cultural productions. They had a show about French cuisine and, you know, they had religious shows about Jesus. And there was, there's a, you know, it's, it's free speech radio. And, uh, and just about that time, I was, the Arab Spring broke out, 2011, and everybody on campus started to turn, started to turn to me because I liked music about, you know, what is the Arab Spring about and how does the music that we keep hearing the chants the 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 musicians that were being arrested at the time how does their music contribute towards the revolts uh towards uh, you know it, it was the soundtrack to the arab spring and i was asked that uh, you know dozens of times a day well you're you're from the arab world ramsey and you like music and you're always talking about it tell us about these musicians from Tunis from tunisia from egypt who are being being arrested for singing a song or who are uh, daring to uh, uh, talk about the overthrowing the system or changing it. And, uh, and just about that time, I was invited to speak about that on the radio. And it was my first time. It was I was a guest on uh, a show that's called The Lunch Special. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that was my first time sitting in the studio. You know, I came in as a guest. I was nervous. And uh, the host, whose name is is Bird. I don't know if he'll ever hear this, but he gave me my first break. I mean, he was asking me the questions that every American at the time was asking, you know, what's mm -hmm. Arabic music about? What can you tell us? Uh, who's this Fayrouz we keep hearing about? Why is she <laughs> so important? And uh, yeah. and what's this, uh, you know, new music we're hearing on TV uh, that is fueling the Arab revolts? And so I was just speaking about it, and then we would play clips so that for, for the first time, this radio station that airs live across uh, Northern California, listeners were being exposed to Arabic songs on the air, mm. which was very different, but then yeah. was accompanied by commentary in English about them. And it worked. I mean, I think after I did that guest spot, um, the radio station asked me to come back five times as a guest and do Amazing. it again and again. And they kept saying mm. people were calling in and saying, wow. We know we never understood um, this Arabic tarab style. You know, when you don't speak Arabic, you don't quite appreciate Um Kulthum or some of the uh, you know the music, the big yeah. um, singers we have, the divas, the 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 Egyptian singers of the '60s who remain so popular and iconic today. But then once you explain what they're singing about, and, and you know, people without necessarily speaking the language could relate, and they wanted more, and so eventually uh, the radio station said why don't you become a dj yourself and i said i'm in my 40s i've been you know I'm, i have a doctorate in arabic can how can i be a dj uh but inside i mean i was very excited they put me through three months of training and learning how to be a dj and then they said you could have your own show and eventually i got the arabology show that i started with the arab spring and it was perfect timing i mean musicians from the arab world were sending me their music saying you know this is banned over here 
Would you mm-hmm. play it over there? And I'm like, yes, we are free speech radio. So, I mean, I do have to say a big shout out to uh, all these Egyptian and Tunisian musicians who were singing for freedom and for a better world and were often being um, harassed for it, uh, who sent me their music and gave me this, the honor of playing it in America. And then oddly enough, I, I'm sure you've seen this, Rania, once Arabic music or an Arab, any kind of Arabic artwork or book gains notoriety in the West, mm. it becomes sort of legitimized and then imported back to the Arab world where they suddenly yes. celebrate it. And I've always found that really funny because people say, well, where did you discover, I don't know, Mashrua Layla at the time, yes. the Lebanese band uh, that was, you know, very groundbreaking and, and, and continued to sort of speak against uh, certain taboos. Well, I, you know, I had met them in Lebanon uh, it was in 2011, I think, 2010. And they were still starting out. I think they were playing at a wedding. And mm. I loved the music and I had released one single and I interviewed them and I, you know, and they kept saying, you know, we're just a little band. Nobody knows us. And I was thinking, wow, but they are writing powerful lyrics. Their music is amazing. The orchestration, the, you know, it's just, it's it was a band that should be discovered you don't have to even like them but they were so groundbreaking and nobody in the arab world knew who they were mm-hmm. and i spoke to people in lebanon they go mashrua leila never heard of them um and then uh i came back to the states uh, armed with my recordings of their music and their um lyrics and, and 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 my interviews with the band members once i aired them on kzsu and i wasn't the only one to discover but you know people started to sort of under uh, air their music in the west and then suddenly lebanon started embracing them you know they yeah. became this international group this amazing group but if it wasn't for people who brought their music to the West, I don't think the Arab world would have given them the attention or the respect that they deserved. They would have just been seen as a fringe band, a marginalized band that's singing about controversial topics, but that don't really relate. But even though they were thinking about controversial topics in the Arab world, the Arab world started embracing them. I mean, there was a sense of pride that, man, they have sold out concerts in the U.S. They must yes. be good. But there they were all along in Lebanon doing the same thing. And uh, nobody really saw them. And of course, they're just an example. I've, I've thought that as well about films and TV series. If they're produced in the States or they've taken, or not necessarily, let's say, but they've been produced and received an Emmy Award or any kind of, you know, a validation from from the West, then they're, even if it's about taboo subjects, they don't come down hard on the actors or the writers for what they've written. But if they dared to have done that in their own country, they'd probably be, exactly. you know, imprisoned. So like the series Rami. I don't we're know on the same wavelength. I, um, as you were saying that, I was thinking of Rami, which is I, I'm currently watching yeah. on, on Hulu. Like the actress Hiam Abbas, you know, if she'd done any of those kind of scenes, if she'd done those back in any other Arab country, she'd be rejected or she would be, you know, um, written about badly, negatively in the press, uh, all kinds of things. But 
it doesn't even get noticed or in fact about. in fact it gets praised um, <laughs> now that's, that's, because it won it an Emmy, praised, yeah. uh, you know or it won a global golden globe and yeah. so i mean i'm very proud of, of ram yusuf because he's actually doing something groundbreaking and then also he's talking about you know being arab american mm. and and being an arab american who's trying to reconcile his religion islam with his reality and his multiple identities but that show had it not gained awards and legitimacy in america and on american tv i don't think would have been appreciated in the arab world mm -hmm. in the same way yet you know there, how many rami no. yusufs do we have right now in the Arab world, who have the talent and the capacity yeah. and, you know, the promise and will, 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 we won't know about or will be still dismissed until they somehow get the stamp of Western you know, legitimacy on their work. And then suddenly it's the same work, yeah. but now we we love them. Rami Malik is another example. I mean, you know, this Egyptian uh, American actor, yes. I'm so proud of him because although he can claim to be American and not even have deal with his identity, he when he won, you know, the Oscar. Uh, it was, you know, he gave this shout out to his family being Egyptian and he spoke Arabic at the Oscars and, you know, and suddenly the Arab world loved him because the West loved him so much. And it didn't even matter that the film that he won an Oscar for, you know, featured a topic that is so taboo in the Arab world. But suddenly, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody yeah. about Freddie Mercury was playing in, in the Arab world and everybody wanted to see it. So, you know, another example of how, you know, you have to go through the West to get appreciated in the East, uh, oftentimes. And, and that is sad. Mm. And I keep saying on my radio show, look around Very you, sad. you may have a Jordanian band living on the same street practicing in their garage right now. And you are saying yes. it's noise. And Wajaras, you know, gives you a headache. And, and then... Yeah that same band will somehow be discovered by uh, a Western, uh, I don't know, record company. And then suddenly everybody is so proud of them. Well, they've been living there all along. And so I hear that all the time. I hear that all yeah. the time, you know, it, it is mm. time that we, um, I think it's time that we give these indie uh, groundbreaking artists uh, who come from the Arab world, uh, the acceptance and the encouragement Support. that they deserve when they're there mm -hmm. and not wait for the West to legitimize them before we agree. Definitely. Now, Ramzi, before becoming a lecturer, um, you also wrote short stories. You wrote The Native Informant, um, Six Tales of Defiance from the Arab World, and you... Um, you approach topics about feminism and homosexuality, you know, way before any of this that we're talking about. So what made you dare to talk about these subjects and write about them? And how was the feedback as well for you when you did? Uh, you're bringing me back to 1996, I think. I was living in Los Angeles at the 94. time. 94. 90, uh, 
<laughs> I love when the interviewer knows more about the guest than the guest himself. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you write your bio, don't you? And you forget about it. But then when someone's just researched it, they've got you all know. the dates. No, but I mean, I do remember wanting, uh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you how it began. The, the book is called The Native Informant and Other Stories. It was the first book I ever published. And I was still very young and I was uh, studying at university and, you know, trying to get my PhD while working as a waiter in the daytime. So I was, you know, uh, very busy and, uh, mm-hmm. and and I wanted somehow to deal with uh, the new Ramsey that was being born. I had at that time decided to stay in America. Uh, you know, I was doing my PhD with the idea of working here and representing the Arab world in academia in some ways. And uh, part of that evolution, I think, in the 90s for me was having to look back at some of the difficult challenges I and my friends and my family faced uh, back in Lebanon and Jordan, as well as the amazing, wonderful experiences I had there as well. Uh, and, but I noticed that so many of the issues that plagued me and that were haunting me had to do with a total silence uh, about the topic in modern literature in the Arab world. So, you know, people would, would always say this is a Western import. If you talked about feminism, they would say, you know, oh, you've been watching a lot of, um, you know, feminist TV from, you know, or reading feminism. The there we go. Well, no, I, I mean, even Gloria Steinem, I mean, I'll tell you, it's being imported from that, from the West. Yes. And the whole idea that there was a feminist movement in the Arab world is, is often sort of ignored, you know, Huda Sharawi and all these amazing women who, uh, mm. despite immeasurable odds, wrote and spoke. You know, that was Arab feminism. They were writing about their yeah. situation. They weren't relying on Western sources to uh, tell them who women are. And they were also saying mm. that, uh, you know, Western feminism doesn't necessarily equate to Arab feminism. There's a global aspect to it, of course, but we are very different and we're not copying them. And there was also an exclusion of uh, Arab feminists from the Western canon, let's say. So a lot of Western mm. feminists would necessarily want to see Arab women as being oppressed in a certain way and try to save them from, you know, themselves. But, yeah. but you know, not giving them the voice to, not, not even giving, not allowing them the voice they already had to speak, you know. And so all these issues plagued me when I was living, um, uh, I think, in Jordan during my teenage years. I have to say Jordan is one of the most amazing countries on earth, and I'm so proud of it. And I, every time I go in the summer, I see so much talent and so the society has changed so much in so many ways. I love it. But back then, at least I hadn't worked on certain issues that I had faced or that friends had faced. Uh, you know, uh, taboos like uh, Christian Muslim marriage uh feminists um marginalized sexualities i mean all of that has always happened in every society including in the arab world but nobody was speaking about them and uh, and so i wanted to give everybody who was marginalized there and that i knew a voice but i didn't want to make it a documentary i thought let me write out 
my story regarding, I don't know, a relationship I had and how it, may, it there was a lot of, you know, drama involved because we were of two different religions, let's say. Let me write yeah. about a friend um, who was a good friend in high school who ended up marrying really young and sort of uh, controlled by a much older husband and who had to suffer a lot silently until she was able to break free. I thought her story needed to be told, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, so there, I need her on the show. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to mention her name, obviously, for, for, for yeah. but, but she is one of the most courageous women I've ever met. And, uh, and the fact mm. that she was able to break free from um, a very patriarchal, uh, you know, traditional and oppressive uh, marriage, I think, as, as she's a hero. So I was I told her story in the book, but I told it through, you know, Red changed the name and I of course added and subtracted from the story so each short story in that book I wrote for myself or for someone thinking of someone uh, there's a story that I dedicated you know in which I included my mother uh, you know but they were written for me they were supposed to be like therapy they were just my attempt to write out my feelings and before I knew it I had I think you know 10 short stories that I had written and uh, somebody said why don't you try to publish them and I said my gosh they're so personal so well nobody's going to know who it is because you've changed the names and the locations and you know nobody's going to know where this is happening um why don't you try so i mean i was I, I didn't even have my doctorate yet and i sent the manuscript in and lo and behold it uh, i got an amazing publishing house at the time three continents press who bought it and and you know wow. gave me Straight well, I, they, usually it takes people ages <laughs> i don't know, know with rejections <laughs> i think it was the time around the time also you know najib mahfouz had won the uh um, the Nobel Prize, and there was an interest in translating a lot of Arabic mm. literature into English. And Three Continents Press, the ones who ended up publishing my book, my collection of short stories, were also had also become famous for tra having translated Najib Mahfouz's work before he yeah. won the Nobel. So now suddenly everybody was discovering them and they were right. one of the few people who have few uh, publishing houses that I that had translated his works from Arabic. So I was very proud. I mean, I wrote my work in English, which is another aspect, you know, of, of my identity because I was living in the States and I mm. needed to write it in English, but it wasn't necessarily uh, catering to a Western audience. In any case, I uh, once they published that book, um, and this was pre-internet, I started getting phone calls from local newspapers and radio shows and people wanted to talk to me and, and, I, and some people said, well, you're the first Arab author to do this and whatever. And I wow. felt so you went viral before viral <laughs> before viral existed, <laughs> you know, yeah. but I mean, I don't think you realize at that age, um, you know, that, you know, you hit sort of a, a point that, that people were relating to. And then the endless letters I would get, not endless, the amazing, wonderful letters I would get. There was not even email. I think there weren't there was an email at the time. People would mail me letters, mail the publisher letters to me. And I would open it and it would be, you know, I'm a young woman living in Saudi Arabia or 
not necessarily Saudi anywhere. And uh, I relate it to one of your stories and thank you for saying it, um, uh, uh, you know, or speaking that truth. Wow. And for me, I was like, my gosh, my little personal little stories that I thought nobody would understand or relate to were very relatable in the Arab world and in the West. And that's what I liked, mm. I guess, being written in English. Um, it attracted a Western audience who wanted to talk about marginalized topics in Arabic literature, but also the fact that now it was published in the West and had gained that legitimacy we talked about meant that the book was being sold in Jordan now. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think whether people hated the book or loved it, it was the fact that this uh, Arab American wrote this book and uh, yes. received some publicity and uh, acknowledgement. And so suddenly, you know, you didn't have to like my book, but you kind of wanted to align yourself with the success of the book. And, uh, and that, you know, that was very cathartic for me. That book remains on my shelf. It's out of print now. People still ask me if it's there and they say, well, it's the first story I read, you know, about, um, you know, certain uh, topics in the Arab world. And, uh, you know, certainly by now, I'm so proud of the new generation. My book is nothing compared to what people are doing now they're finally writing but and... it's because of books like that and people daring to speak up and and be open that gives someone else encouragement and someone else in another generation the next encouragement for it to reach there yeah i mean you never think you're 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 doing that when yeah. you're writing the book you never think i'm going mm. to inspire a generation yeah i'm thinking mm. i'm just writing out my pain I'm writing out yes. my experience and I'm writing it for me. I mean, I really didn't think I was going to publish it. So that's why I poured everything out in it. Maybe if I knew I was yeah. writing for a publisher, I would have been restrained or pressured or, you know, felt, you know, it was just that, that you know, when you write for yourself, don't think about publishing. The very first story I wrote was about my mother. And, uh, and that was the beginning of it all. It was, you know, I wanted to, sort of discuss my relationship with my mother, who is a highly intelligent, amazing woman. But, you know, there were certain dynamics and certain problems in our relationship. And, you know, I mean, I left Jordan when I was 17. And I remember my teen years in Jordan were very, very turbulent. And my relationship with my parents was very problematic. And, you know, I think I, I gave them a lot of headaches. But at the same time, I was also trying to find out who I was. And so the first story was supposed to be a letter to my mother. Then I thought, you know, I don't want to write to her directly. I'll fictionalize it. And I made it a fictional story. And it was that first story that triggered the second one and the third one about, you know, other themes of breaking free. And so I thought by publishing the book, I, you know, I did, I felt I broke free because I said it and now the book was out there. I couldn't take it back. And, uh, and so, you know, I sent the first copy to my mother. <laughs> Remember, this wow. was pre-internet. You had to send the actual Yes, what was her reaction? And, and so, you know, her reading the first story, I want, I mean, I just wanted she didn't know I was writing anything. And uh, maybe now after all these years, I'm able to betray that, yes, it was loosely, loosely based on my mother. Um, uh, you know, I, I, there was, uh, there was a, uh, in it, I think, uh, uh, an attempt to reach out to her uh, through writing and hoping for a dialogue about things that were 
uh, you know, sort of that we were struggling with back when I lived in Jordan. But when she read the story, I mean, she enjoyed it, but I don't think she related to it. <laughs> she related it to herself. Uh, and, yes. uh, and, you know, which, which I respect. I mean, she certainly congratulated me on the book, but didn't quite understand how the first story would relate to her. Uh, yeah. and, and, and that gave us, I think, uh, a chance to begin a dialogue about, you know, well, do you see me this way? And I will, I don't necessarily see you that way. This was a fictional character, but there are fragments of you in this. And then mm. for her to kind of try to see how it was for me back then yes. when I was a teenager living under their roof. Um, and for me also to try to understand why they were so um, resistant to my re little rebellions. Uh, and so it turned out to be the best thing I did. Um, that short story, once it was published and once my mother and I discussed it and once it came and went, became, uh, you know, formed a beautiful relationship that I have to, with my mother to this day. I'm so proud of her. Uh, she's cute. definitely not the character that, who I, whom I, you know, that I wrote about back in the 90s. It might have been based on her, but it was based on her back then. And I think we've both yes. grown so much uh, since then. And maybe this story turned out to be a cry for help on my part, but ended up uh, creating a much needed dialogue with my mom and my dad eventually. Well, Ramsey, as I'm lucky to have that actual story, even though it's out of print, I thought it would be nice to read two pages of it, at least, to the listeners so that they can get an idea of how amazing the story actually is. So here it goes. Vivian and her son. The 40 days had passed, each adding what felt like a year to her life, and things had finally quieted down. This was the first morning that Vivian had been able to wake up to her empty house. She felt strange yet relieved to be alone. For the past 40 days, her home had been flooded by people whose stated intent was to make her life easier by keeping her house clean, preparing the coffee for the mourners, greeting the guests, choosing which black dress she would wear that day, doing her hair up in the morning and undoing it as they tucked her in her bed at night. Vivian had not resisted. Although she had wanted to be alone from the moment she had heard of the car accident which had resulted in her son's death. She knew that solitude was a luxury women in her situation could not afford in a world of compassionate relatives and friends who were eager to appease, comfort and take charge. It seemed to her that whenever she would try to say something, she would suddenly be surrounded by a swarm of coarse black dresses that brushed against her body. Eager arms that pulled her to heavy breasts, sweaty palms that caressed her cheeks, wiping off invisible tears, and shrills of pity and compassion that echoed in her ears, silencing her own voice by reminding her that she was helpless to fight against her surroundings. As if that were not enough, she was also scared to open her mouth for fear of various barbiturates being stuffed down her throat, followed by a hot liquid that tasted much too bitter to be coffee. She had thus surrendered in her fight to be alone. She, who had always refused to let anyone make her decisions or intrude on her privacy, had come to accept the fact that she had become much like a new toy in the hands of a depraved child. The only time she had had to be with herself was when she went to the bathroom. Yet even that precious moment had been disturbed by discreet knocks on the bathroom door 
announcing the arrival of new guests or the departure of old ones. Sitting amid the mourners, gazing at unrecognizable black figures that came and went, she had wondered why her desire for privacy had been denied. At such moments her mind would fill with questions. Why are they afraid to leave me alone? Do they think I'm totally helpless? Don't they realize that strength has always been within myself, not something I have acquired and absorbed from others? What are all these ceremonies doing for me or for my Umar? Are they here to comfort me or to make an appearance? Who is that woman in the Yves Saint Laurent dress and golden jewelry anyway? I've never seen her before in my life, yet she is smiling at me as if we had been brought up together. Does she think she is giving me strength? Why is she in my home when she didn't even know my son? And who are those two women whispering to each other in the corner? They must be the wives of those two men whom I can hear talking about the bad state of the economy in the adjoining room. And who are these men anyway? Business acquaintances of Mejdi's, no doubt, hoping to make an impression and slide in business talk during his weak moments. What is Nejwa Zabane doing here? The last time I saw her was a year ago at the CISV meeting, and all she did was contradict every suggestion I made. Well, she looks like she's enjoying the food, at least. Then her mind would turn to questions that she did not, could not, deal with amid strangers. These always began with why, and were always interrupted by someone or something. It was as if they waited for the moment she began to think of Amr, to ask her a question or involve her in a debate. She had concluded that if she wished to be left out of their conversations, all she had to do was not think of the questions she needed to deal with most of all. Ramzi Salti, thank you for being on my podcast today. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you again and hear your story. Thank you, Rania, and congratulations on your podcast. I am so proud. I can't wait to share this episode and all episodes with your listeners and with listeners worldwide. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Breaking Free, please share it with your friends or on your social media platforms. And of course, I'd really love it if you can subscribe, rate or review the show. You can reach me directly at raniakurdi.com if you would like to ask a question, comment on what you heard today or find out how I can support you on your journey.